Well, this might be your first Sunday at Bethel Church, and if it is, great, super glad you're here. Um, You happen to be picking a Sunday that is the last Sunday in a teaching series that we have been doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is an Old Testament book. It's a kind of an obscure little book in the, in the Old Testament. We've been studying it for basically all of 2016. And uh, it is a book that unexpectedly has a grand finale. Okay, this is like Fourth of July fireworks where you're like, is it done? Is it done? And then all of a sudden, you have the grand finale and how much fun that is. There is a grand finale here in Ecclesiastes, and it's an unexpected one. And what I mean by that is that for 12 chapters and 12 verses, Solomon basically says, you don't matter. Your life doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Everything's meaningless. Everything's futile. It feels absurd. What's the point of life? We all die, and nobody remembers us anyway. So live your totally vain life, but don't pretend that it means anything. It's been very encouraging, hasn't it? Uh, And so he says that for 12 chapters and 12 verses. And then you get the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. And it's like a grand finale, unexpected, where he says essentially, not that everything doesn't matter, but that there's a reason that actually everything does matter, okay? And that's where we're going to be going uh, here today. But I want to spend a little time in the verses preceding those before we get to verses 13 and 14. So let's just quickly work through 9 through 12. And uh, read with me, if you would, Ecclesiastes 12. And by that I mean follow along. You don't need to read it out loud with me. Uh, Verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The preacher, he says here, and we saw that at the beginning of the series, that he self-identifies as the preacher throughout the book. Now, many people, I would dare say most people, believe that Solomon, King Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, was the one who wrote uh, this book, but we don't know for sure. It might have been somebody assuming his identity and then writing it from the perspective of Solomon. Uh, regardless, we know that it's to be read as if it is Solomon, and we have been actually taking it that it, it was Solomon in our study. Where did Solomon's wisdom come from? We know from Kings that God came to Solomon shortly after he became king of Israel and said, I'll give you anything you want. Now, that'd be a great dream, wouldn't it? (laughs) Silence here. You're like, we're not sure at this point in the series if we're supposed to say anything. Of course, if God came to you and said, I'll give you anything you want. Okay, that sounds great. Well, Solomon was wise enough to ask for wisdom. He asked God for wisdom to lead the people of Israel. And God said, not only am I going to make you the wisest man on earth, maybe the wisest who ever lived, I'm going to give you everything you didn't ask for. And he lavished Solomon with power and fame and glory and wealth, one of the great kings in human history, King Solomon. But God granted him this wisdom, and and the wisdom that he had was 
the kind of wisdom people came from all over the world just to hear what he had to say. We know the, king, the queen of Sheba, for example, came just to hear what Solomon had to say. This is a day where you didn't just blog, you know, read his blog or you know, download his podcast on wisdom. You had to go and hear it with your own ears. And people came from all over the world to do that. So the wisdom that he had was God-enabled, God-given. Look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. He says here that wisdom, biblical, God-given wisdom, is like goads and nails. What's a goad? A goad was a long stick with a pointy end on it. Okay, that they would use with cattle, sheep, whatever, to get them to go the right direction. We call it a cattle prod. Okay, I'm not an expert in cattle prodding, but I understand that even now they're like electrified almost, like it zaps them, right? And that cow was going this way, and now it's moo, you know, it's going over this way now. The prod got their attention. And I've never been prodded, but I have to think it's not a great experience to be prodded, but it produces a great fruit, and wisdom, biblical wisdom, is like that. We live our life a certain way, and all of a sudden, God confronts us with his word, conviction, whatever it is, and we feel the sting of the prod of the wisdom of God, but the fruit is great because it gets our life going in the direction that God would have us. Solomon says that's what, that's what these words of the wise are like. He says they're like a nail. Okay, they're like a nail on the wall. Uh, if this was winter, I'd say many of you, you, you know, you go home and you take your coat off and you hang it on a peg or something on your wall at your home. You can hang a lot of coats on a single peg, and you can hang a lot of life on a biblical truth, and we're called to do that. Maybe you've done that in your life. You've had a big decision of some kind, and there was a verse that just stood out to you, and you're like, you know what? I am basing my decision here upon what this verse says, and you, you hang your life on that truth. And this is good. This is the way we're supposed to live, is to live according to God's wisdom, and we have God's wisdom in His Word. He says here that these wise words actually come from one shepherd. And if you'll notice in the text, that S What's unique about that S? It's, it's capitalized, at least in the ESV translation that I have. And the English translators, they'll capitalize a noun when they believe that it is referring to God himself. So that shepherd is a reference to God, that this wisdom came from God. Solomon's basically saying, yes, I wrote it down. I arranged the sayings. I put them in order. I wrote them as good as I could, uprightly and beautifully, but the truth behind it comes from God. And what this is, it's an, it's an Old Testament, an early reference to what we call the doctrine of inspiration. That what we have with the Bible, yes, are the words of men. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Probably Solomon. Who wrote Proverbs? Solomon wrote Proverbs. Who wrote Acts? Luke wrote Acts. Who wrote Matthew? Matthew wrote Matthew. Who wrote Pauline epistles? Paul wrote them. But... Behind that writing 
was the purpose and the will of God so that the Bible is simultaneously the words of men and the very word of God. And the doctrine of that is known as the doctrine of inspiration, that God so worked through these authors that what they wrote was exactly what God wanted them to write, right down to the the tense of the verbs. An example, Jesus answers the Pharisees and says, you know, they say, you know, about that, talking about the future resurrection and all that. Jesus says, uh, God is the God, he is the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, I'm, I'm not quoting that right. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. All based upon the tense of am. <laughs> Okay? As an example, that right down to the details, the word of God is, are the words of God. And we see Solomon referencing who was actually behind the words that he wrote and the things that we've studied in this series. So that when we have the Bible, the, and, he, and he says there's many books are written and there's a weariness of soul and study and all of that, what he is saying there is, you could read every book in the Library of Congress, you could memorize every book in the Library of Congress, But what you have when you hold the Bible in your hand is so much more valuable than all the wisdom of man, because this is the wisdom of God, okay? So let's be people of books, okay? We like books, we we like to read books, but let's make sure that we are people of one book, the Bible, which is his holy word, amen? Okay, amen. All from one shepherd. Now... As we get into these last two verses, I'd like to quickly summarize 12 chapters and 12 verses, okay? What have we seen in all of these months of studying Ecclesiastes? Well, what we have seen is that the most repeated thing over and over again that Solomon has to say is the, what he begins with in chapter 1 and what he essentially ends with in chapter 8 of verse, 12, or verse 8 of verse 12, which is this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And haven't we seen that as the main theme over and over and over again? He says, well, this is kind of what human life is like, and so my summary of that is it's meaningless. That's another translation of vanity. It's a Hebrew word. It means vapor or smoke. It's a good image, isn't it? Because what's true of vapor? You go out on a cold day in Indiana and you breathe and there's this vapor, right? What's true about it? Well, it's there and then it's gone, just like that. And what also is true about that vapor is it looks like it's something, right? Like it looks like it's something, but then you go to grab it and you realize there's nothing actually to it. And human life is like that vapor. It is, therefore, futility, meaningless, absurdity. These are the words. This word is used 38 times in Ecclesiastes over and over again. The summary statement of man's condition apart from God is final absurdity. People have been saying, hey, thanks for the series this in Ecclesiastes. It's the most meaningless series I've ever done. And I know if they laugh whether they've actually been listening. Okay. I think every atheist's favorite book of the Bible is Ecclesiastes, except the last two verses for reasons that I'll get into. 
Why? Because an atheist or an evolutionary biologist or a naturalistic worldview essentially explains reality the same way that Solomon has been explaining reality. That we are a random accumulation of molecules over time, that we are conditioned in society to see meaning. You know, words like beauty and love are not actual, they're just pretend, because there is no actual meaning behind anything. We're just here and we die in this universe of galaxies, and then that's it. And that's what is taught in many of the schools and most of the universities and what is the worldview that is pushed upon us in the sort of secular society that we live in, which is why I think they should love Ecclesiastes, because what is the summary from that perspective? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I mean, what's the point of life? I can pretend that my life matters and my relationships matter and my pursuits have, but in the end, I'm dead. And then when I'm dead, I'm dead. There's nothing after that. That's what Ecclesiastes is pressing upon us, the futility of that worldview. And then Solomon here, so wonderfully, he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, for those of you that think that maybe what you're doing is actually going to bring meaning in your life, let me just tell you my resume. And you get to chapter two, and he begins to list his accomplishments. Do you remember? He talks about you know, his, his wisdom. He talks about his wealth. He talks about, which was astronomical wealth. We, he, he talks about building projects that, that, that he did and bear his name. Talked about accomplishments of this and that. He talks about uh, his artistic flair. You know, if you're more of an artistic type, you would have loved Solomon. He filled his palace with singers and dancers and music, and he loved, he's a Renaissance guy, you know, and he had all of that going on. And, and on top of that, he had all of the sort of sensory, sexual sort of pleasures that uh, a man could imagine. He had 300 wives, 700 concubines, a thousand women there in his palace that uh, were there as king he, you know, could just enjoy. And he goes through that whole list, and it's quite a list. And he says, here's my summary. Having accomplished and done all of those things, chapter 2, verse 17, I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. And friends, isn't that where life takes us? Have you experienced that already? I mean, you think of these young people, and we're celebrating sort of student, you know, takeover Sunday and student ministry, and these young people, they're, they're aspirational, right? So, hey, what do, you do want, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to do this. I want to do that. And they're hopeful for relationships and maybe, you know, marriage and family and doing this and having that and all the rest. And that's all great. And I think we should applaud that and encourage them to dream big and go for it. But what do we know, those of us that have been around the block a few times, having accomplished some of the things that they want to accomplish and acquired the things that they hope to acquire and experienced the things that they hope to experience, what do we know about those things? We know that those things don't make you happy. There is an ache on the other side of that acquisition that continues to have a longing with it. Something's still not quite right. I don't feel whole yet. I, I have this, but now I'm aspiring to have 
that because this didn't quite get me there. And on and on it goes. That is the reality of life. And we looked at, uh, you know, the rich people of the world. We looked at billionaires who have incredible wealth, can buy anything they want. And yet over and over again, what do we find with that sort of class of society? They are numbing the pain in their hearts with drugs, sometimes dying from them. We talked about Prince as the most recent example of a guy worth hundreds of millions of dollars and yet addicted to drugs and using them apparently all the time to deal with reality in spite of all of his fame and all of his wealth and his access to anything that he could want. And we see people like that. And those of us that, you know, we don't have their fame, we don't have their wealth, in our hearts we could think, well, if I did, you know, like you ever have that play that game of friends? Like if you had a billion dollars, what would you do? right? We're like, oh, it would be so awesome. And yet we look at the billionaires and it's not that awesome, apparently. But we would like to think that it would be. And we could go to our grave thinking, well, I never was happy because I never had the billions of dollars. But the testimony of the princes and the Whitneys and the Robin Williams and, you know, whoever else is going to die this month that's in that category because they die all the time of similar causes, often suicide, has to tell us that what Ecclesiastes is saying and what Solomon is saying is actually true. You can do all of those things and go, I hate myself. I hate life. It's all vanity. Ecclesiastes further encouraged us by saying, not only is it vain, but life is so uncertain Like, you can think that you're all that and healthy and you can die like that. You can have a mountain of money and it can take wings and fly away. Or you can die and it goes on to somebody and who knows what they're going to do with all everything that you, all your hard work. It's vain, right? Encouraging things like that, that he has said. And on top of all of that, at the very best, Uh, All we can do is say that there is a time for this and there's a time for that. There's a time for mourning, there's a time for dancing. There's a time uh, for the good things in life, but we know that in this life there is always going to be seasons of the bad things. And that's encouraging as well. If you're in a bad season because you think to yourself, well, it's not always going to be like this. True. But if you're in a good season, what do you think? It's coming, right? It's coming. And the ultimate bad season that Ecclesiastes over and over has pounded home to us is that you could have a long season of joy, but in the end, what does it matter why? Because you die. You're going to be dead. Yay. (laughs) Scratch out meaning in your life as best you can, but don't pretend anything other than you're going to be dead. Sure, you can enjoy your wife and drink good coffee because we all know life's too short to drink bad coffee. (laughs) But in the end, and this is chapter 12, old age eventually gets all of us. You could be the high school track athlete, you could be a ballerina in college, but eventually we all look like that grasshopper pulling itself along on one leg. That's what he said, right? And... The creeping reality of old age is unavoidable, right? The aches, the pains, the wrinkles, 
the change. You wish it was different, but you can't stop it. And so his final statement is just a repetition of his first statement. He says in chapter 12, verse 8, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now remember, he isn't, this isn't just some nut job doing a, a rant and a blog. He is saying, what I am saying here is what God says about reality. This is the words of the one shepherd. Okay, So he's just not off on some crazy tangent having drunk too much last night. He is saying this is reality as it is. And he has very well described the human condition. Okay. Final summary, everything's meaningless. But then you get to verse 13. Chapter 12, verse 13. And a whole other thing kicks in here that makes you wonder, like, what's he been doing for 12 chapters and 12 verses if this is his final conclusion? Like, what, Solomon, what got into you? Did you, like, go to a Billy Graham crusade, find religion, and then write the last two verses? Because it's so different than the tone of what he has been saying all along. So let me read now. Here's the, you're wondering, okay, what do these verses say? Here's what he says, the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, I hope that you remember a chart that I have put up here oftentimes explaining Ecclesiastes. I'm going to put it up here one last time. And I've, I've used this chart to try to explain the kind of the worldview, the perspective that Solomon has been writing from. Right after Adam and Eve's sin, there is this breach between God and, and mankind. And the despair and the certainty of death because God said, you shall surely die. And that slow process of returning to dust and the brokenness in Adam and Eve's relationships and Cain and Abel and just all of the pain in this world. That's Ecclesiastes. In fact, Jennifer and I have, since I've been doing this series, when we watch the news and it's some kind of story like that, we just look at each other and go, Ecclesiastes, you know. That is the world that we, that is the world that we live in. And I've, I've said, you know, so often you, you want to you say, hey, Solomon, can I take you to Matthew? Or can I take you to Romans 3 or Romans 5? Can I take you to Revelation and the new heaven and the new earth? Because you are so despairing. What Solomon needs is Solomon needs a little bit of Jesus. But he is not writing. He doesn't know anything about Jesus. Okay? He is writing prior to the cross, hundreds of years prior to the cross. Describing man's search for meaning apart from God. So, I think what Solomon has been doing is he spent 12 chapters and 12 verses getting us ready to read the last two verses properly. The last two verses properly and redemptively, I hope. What is he saying in these two verses? I would summarize it this way. Not that everything is meaningless, but that in the end, everything matters. Everything matters. 
What does he say? Here's the sum, or here is the bottom line. Here's my final conclusion. What should we do in light of the fact of all of this absurdity and all of this futility and my one life that I live in this earth, what should I do? He says, fear God and obey his commands. Fear God and obey his commands. What does it mean, first of all, to fear God? This is a common phrase. He's actually said this prior in Ecclesiastes. He says it often in Proverbs. What does it mean to fear God? Here's uh, one author says it this way. To fear God is to take God seriously, to acknowledge him in our lives as the highest good, to revere him, to honor and worship him, to center our lives on him. Okay, fearing God is not walking around in anxiety, popping pills to deal with uh, you know, stress in my life. To fear God is, in my heart, to hold him in the highest place. It is for his will, his purpose, what he wants to be the big thing that I want in my life. It is, it is worship, it is reverence, it is love. All of that is a part of, of fearing God. He is the weightiest person, and his His opinion matters more than anybody else's. Since life is fleeting and uncertain, live in the fear of the Lord, is what he says there. Well, thank you, Solomon, but what does that look like exactly? Like, how do I know if I'm living in the fear of the Lord? Well, what fearing God on the inside looks like on the outside is obedience, okay? And that's why the second phrase there is obey his commands. Obedience, then, is a life and a lifestyle that is lived in submission to God. So I fear God attitudinally, inwardly, and outwardly I strive as best I can to live in obedience to the Lord's commands. But it starts in the heart. And I think that's important because I don't want you to leave here going, that's right, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to obey in every respect because we can't obey in every respect. We're sinners, right? Or to legalistically think, hey, I'm going I'm to earn favor with God by being the most obedient person on my block or in my family or in my school. The story of the Bible is not that we work our way to God, it's that God has worked his way to us in his son Jesus. So put that out of your mind. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about an inward treasuring and loving and fearing of God and a life that is lived desiring to please him with my moral and lifestyle choices. Well, Solomon, why should I do that? Because if in the end nothing matters then who cares if I'm obedient or not? Notice the last verse. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The last verse of Ecclesiastes is about judgment. Okay? And I'm not going to get into all the, there's lots about in the Bible about judgment. It's just I'm going to say judgment, okay? That God is going to evaluate our lives. And notice he says, not just the big things, like overall in the big scope, were you obedient? It says here, right down to the secret things, the little things, those also are going to be feared, uh, to be judged. And therefore, we ought to live every day in the fear of the Lord, knowing what is coming. 
That's what he is saying here. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a strong statement. Live with the reality of what is coming. But now, so that's the harsh reality. Here's the helpful. What does it mean that God is going to judge even the details of our life? It means that the details of our life matter. They are not insignificant. They matter to God. We only judge things that matter. We don't judge things that don't matter. We judge things that do matter. And our lives matter to God. For the last two weeks, my family's been totally addicted to the Olympics. Anybody else there? And I mean that in a sort of godly way, right? A godly addiction and holy. But uh, no, I grew up watching the Olympics. My family loves the Olympics. So I was excited to be able to watch the Olympics now. Curly's three, so she kind of can, you know, get into it a little bit. And uh, so much fun, especially the gymnastics with a three-year-old daughter, because, you know, they're doing their thing on the screen, and she's doing her thing in the family room. And she's mimicking as best she can what she sees up there. And it's so cute. I have video that I want to show you. No, I'm not going to do that. But... uh, it's totally adorable. It's totally adorable. Meaningless, but adorable. And uh, so anyway, she would jump and twirl and do all the things with the gymnasts. And uh, so we spent a lot of time watching this DVR. Okay, go back. We play it again, play it again, play it again so she can run around and do her thing. So I'm very acquainted with Olympic uh, gymnastics right now. If you've watched it, you know how this goes because... They have these events, right? Floor exercise, the vault, for example. Some of them are quick, some of them are, the vault's a quick one, right? Boom. That's it. It's like five seconds, maybe, is the vault. What follows after the vault, though, takes a long time because now everybody has an opinion about that vault, okay? So you have uh, the, the girl's parents, we're cheering. This is the greatest vault that's ever been done. You know, they're so excited. You have, if it's an American, the American contingent there, they're, they have an opinion on, you know, what that was. You have the commentators who are, you know, they're doing slow motion replays of the vault. Oh, notice that her, you know, her fourth toe uh, from the left <laughs> was half an inch from where it should have been. And they're analyzing it, and um, the gymnast herself has an opinion on how it went. But there's only one opinion that matters. So to watch, the, to watch gymnastics is very short events, followed by a lot of waiting for the judgment, the assessment, the evaluation on that particular event. And we saw the same routine over and over again. We are awaiting the judge's score. Okay. Was it good enough for gold? Is it a silver? Is it a bronze? You know, and they they close up on the the gymnast, and she's nervous and biting her lip and trying to act like, you know, everything's cool, but she's like looking up at the screen or the board wanting to see what her score is. 
Her whole life she's dreamed of this moment, right? Think of all the practice and all of the early mornings, those parents taking those kids to do this. And, I mean, incredible discipline to do it. And it all comes down to what those judges say. What do we call gymnastics meets where there are no judges? Those are called exhibitions, right? It's an exhibition. And they go out and they do their routines and nobody really cares if they stepped on the line or if their third toe in from the left wasn't quite exactly where it should have been or if they went too long or, I mean, it's an exhibition. Nobody's judging it. It doesn't matter, you know. It's like NFL preseason games. You can tell even the players out there are going, this is stupid. You know, why are we doing this? Because why? Because the score, the score doesn't matter in an NFL preseason game. So nobody cares about NFL preseason games. We only care about things where the score matters, where the, the judgment matters. And what Ecclesiastes is saying here is that in the eyes of God, everything in our life matters to God. Right down to the secret details of our life, God is keenly interested in those aspects of our life. You take out God, you take out scores, you take out judgment, nothing matters. You insert God, you insert judgment, everything matters. There is a God, there is a judgment, and that means, friend, that your life matters. Which is a scary thing, isn't it? I mean, if, if, I'm, getting, if I'm told to obey God and to fear God, and my life is going to be judged down to the details of my life. What do we all know about the details of our life? You want to have judges evaluating the details, the secret details of your life? I don't very much because I, know what I, I think I know what's going to happen there. There's a lot of deductions that are going to be assessed to me in the secret things in my life. And that is why we have to read Ecclesiastes through the cross. That chart that I had where it's all pointing to the cross, it's all pointing to Jesus, because only in Jesus can any of us have a positive judgment in the future. In fact, if I may push my gymnastics illustration a wee bit further here, how good do we have to be for God to judge us as good? The routine of our life. How good does it have to be? And the Bible says we have to be perfect. Our entire life, right down to the secret things, not one deduction, not one time stepping out of bounds. And what are the chances of any of us doing that? The Bible says zero. Why? Because we are all Sinners, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one that does this life perfectly. There is no one that meets that standard of the holy judge. And what Ecclesiastes is doing is in an Old Testament way hinting at the cross and the need that man has for somebody to come and to do the perfect routine in our place. And lo and behold, who is that? It is Jesus. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Okay? 
He made him to have all the deductions who didn't have a deduction so that we who have all the deductions in the eyes of God might be seen as having no deductions. That's the Pastor Steve translation there, kind of off the cuff, but does it work? Okay. So the cross is the answer to, here's Solomon's search. He's looking here. He's looking there. He's trying to find something that satisfies. He tries everything available to man. He had the means and the wealth to do it. The same things people in our society do all the time. Looking for this, looking this, trying this, trying that. And he gets to the end and he says, it's all vanity. I hate life. There's no meaning to it. And we keep reading in the Bible. And we come to find out in the New Testament that the same God that does the judging does something that the Olympics never allow. He allows contestants to switch their scores. Now the theologians are looking for the big word, it's called substitutionary atonement, but for the rest of us we'll just think in terms of the Olympics. He allows us to switch scores. Or to say it this way, Has there ever been a routine, moral life lived, that was perfect? And the only one we know of is Jesus, right? What was God's assessment of him? This is my son, with whom I am well pleased. His life lived perfectly. What is his assessment of us? Zero. Right, But in the plan of God is the switching of scores where the perfect moral gymnast, Jesus, his score is granted to us. And all the rewards that are deserved to him, gold, bronze, silver, whatever it might be, he lavishes on us. And our score of moral zeroness is given to him. And all of the disqualification that we deserve, he took on the cross in our place. This is known as justification, as God declares us to be all perfect moral gymnasts. Even though we flopped and fell and messed up over and over in our life, he declares us perfect, which frees him then to lavish rewards on us. And that is also in the Bible. When we think about judgment, this is not for a Christian, this is not a judgment of of the sort of like heaven or hell because that was satisfied at the cross. This is an assessment that God is going to make over all of our lives. This is 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And I was reading that, and I'm like, that sounds exactly like the last verse of Ecclesiastes. In fact, just to put them up here together, notice how they're almost exactly the same, right? God will bring every deed into judgment. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ for a judgment right down to the the details of our life, the things done in the body, whether good or evil, 2 Corinthians, whether good or evil. And I don't know if Paul was quoting Solomon and Ecclesiastes, but he might have been, okay? He might have been. But Ecclesiastes is not a, there's no hope in that because that judgment tells me I am lost. 
But we get to 2 Corinthians 5.10 in the New Testament, and there is hope in this judgment, not for condemnation, because there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, but there is the opportunity of commendation and of reward, eternal rewards that God promises to lavish on us. Do we deserve it? No, we're the, we're the zero gymnasts. But he is seeing us through the righteousness of Christ and the things that we do in obedience to him now provide occasion for him to lavish his grace on us, rewards that do not perish like the gold medal, but are imperishable, kept in heaven for you, Peter says. And that is out there to motivate. Think of, you've watched the Olympics. The discipline that these athletes have done for a round object that has a particular color, unbelievable, a lifetime of work and eating this and working out and practicing and, I mean, incredible discipline and labor for something that will not last. And God puts out there for his people rewards that we will have forever, honor and distinction from God that we will have forever. For what, you say? For faithful obedience, for fearing God and obeying his commands. Not in order to earn my way to God, because I can't earn my way to God. God has come to me in his son Jesus. Now because of that, I serve him and I sacrifice for him and I do what I can to use my gifts and advance the kingdom of God and not go to the middle service. All I have with all I have for his glory. A life lived all in. Like the song that was sung, here, here I lay it down. I lay it down. My life is an act of worship, a sacrifice, Romans 12. Knowing that there is a judgment and there is reward for faithful obedience to him is a wonderful motivation. So the question I think today is, there's two questions. Number one, which performance are you going to be evaluated on when that judgment day comes? Is it going to be your moral performance? Because what do we know about your moral performance? It is inadequate in the eyes of God. And for you, friend, Ecclesiastes points you to put your faith and your trust in Christ. And I would urge you to do that today. You do not want to stand before a holy, righteous judge based on your performance. But there is a perfect performance that has been done. And trusting in him, you get his score. And I would urge you to do that today. But for the Christians that are here, here at the end of Ecclesiastes, to... Realize that powerfully what it's saying here is life is fleeting. Don't waste your life. Live your life for God. Everything's going to be forgotten. You're going to be forgotten. You're, this day is going to be forgotten. That grave over your, that headstone, someday it's, you know, the wind and all that. They won't even be able to read your name. No one's going to remember that accomplishment from this week. Life is fleeting. But let every day... And the reality of the opportunity of reward forever motivate you to do it, 
to his glory. And to think about that day, you know, in, in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a day for mourning, there's a day for dancing. In heaven, that verse is, there's just a day for dancing. The only season up there is the season of dancing. The only season up there is a season of joy. Nobody gets old there. <laughs> there's no ache, there's no pain, there's no gradual decline, there's no deterioration. You can throw Ecclesiastes in the garbage once you get there because it doesn't apply anymore. Despair? There's no despair here. Everything's meaningful. Everything's wonderful. Nothing is vanity. So meaningless or meaningful, friend, which eternal path are you on? Because in Christ, your life can be meaningful, meaningful. All is meaningful. Praise God for Ecclesiastes. Amen. Wonderful book.